Hello and welcome to Game On Girl, the podcast where we talk about gender and game culture. I'm your host, Regina McMenemy. And I'm your co-host, Rhonda Oglesby. And today we have episode 31 for you, Building Community. And we're talking to BioWare Community Manager, Jessica Marzen. So stay tuned for a fantastic interview and lots and lots of interesting conversation and feedback on Game On Girl. We're very excited today to have Jessica Marzen join us on the show. And Jessica is a community manager for BioWare, which I know many of our listeners are big fans of a couple of their franchises. Uh, the first that come to mind are Mass Effect and Dragon Age, which are two that Jessica works for. I'm actually going to throw it out to you, Jessica, and if you could give us a, a little bit of like a description of what a community manager does. Sure, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really um, excited to be here, and I, I love the work that you both do. Um, you. So I work as a community manager, and basically it, it really does depend on the company because some companies just kind of throw everything at the community manager. The community manager is the jack-of-all-trades. They you know, do Photoshop stuff for the graphics. They um, set up all the social media accounts. They will... Um, be forum moderators, and uh, they'll do podcast video content, um, as well as, as you know, some marketing, you know, newsletters, things like that. My role is a little bit more tailored to my strengths and the ones that we want our community to be involved with. I'm, I'm really fortunate to have a great team that I work with. We have a dedicated social media coordinator who runs our Twitter channels, Facebook, and our Instagram and Pinterest now. Um, oh, wow. And I have um, another coordinator who works with the game teams directly um, to get assets from them. He uh, is our main forum moderator. And then so what I do is I kind of oversee all these operations, make sure that um, we're giving the community what they need and that the community is not only um, is not only satisfied with their game experience, but we're entertaining them and also educating them on the, um, the video game industry. We do a lot of events. Um, the last one we just came back from a few weeks ago was PAX Prime, mm -hmm. um, where the entire event was was basically just a celebration of the video game industry and what goes into it. And, you know, we didn't hype up any of our franchises, but we talked a lot about what goes into the disciplines and, um, and the jobs. So for me, it's really about that strategy and structure, making sure that our fans have that line of communication open. And I think that the, the biggest thing that we're doing is always refining our processes and gathering feedback because at the end of the day, the community manager is really all about being the liaison with the fans and providing that feedback to the studio and to the developers. So I work, I do work for the studio, but I, I have just a big a stakeholder in the fans. They're they're the people who keep me in business. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. That's a handful. <laughs> yeah, I was <laughs> thinking the same thing. <laughs> wow. Talk about a lot of um, different types of things to <clears throat> excuse me to manage and to bring together. Oh, definitely. And yeah. the 
the industry is expanding. So mm-hmm. I, I think that people are realizing more and more that you can't have one person who is coordinating your live events, who is, right. you know, Photoshopping banners, who is, um, responding to all the tweets that you get that. Right. So we're seeing social media and, um, community teams getting built up and bringing in more people so that people can really start honing in on their expertise and, um, not having to spread themselves out so thin. Right. I I think that's a really, really indicative of the power that the internet has to, to bring communities and people together and the respect that we're seeing emerge from the game industry for gamers and, and for their communities and for the people that play for them. So I think that's awesome. So you are a gamer, right? You were a gamer before you started working for Bioware. Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, I've been, gaming's always been a very big part of my life. Can you tell us a little bit about your history? My sister and I were, we were always really into kind of interactive arts. My mom was not one of those mothers who thought that TV and video games and um, music were going to rot our brains. She <laughs> always, she always, uh, you know, scrimped and saved and, and bought us. Uh, we had a, a a Clicchio vision from the time I was probably born, I'm sure, because it came out before I was even, I was even around. Um, so we had Clicchio vision. We had this little educational kind of computer thing that you could draw on called a Pico. Um, we had a Sega Genesis. And so my sister and I, we were just, we were very imaginative, but when we weren't, you know, having tea parties and building forts, we were gaming. Um, she and I loved two-player games, which I'm super sad that there's not as many two-player games out anymore. A a Mm. lot of them are, you know, online where you can experience it, but it's not as fun if you have just like couch (laughs) co-op. Yeah. You're, uh, you're singing Rhonda's tune right now. (laughs) Better believe it. But I, I, I can understand because at the same time, gamers have an expectation that graphics need to be so, you know, innovative and always pushing the limit. So I, as far as I understand it, um, when you have the graphics where they are, it really limits your couch co-op capabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, it's why I was surprised that I even had to go out and buy an HDMI cable to play uh, Minecraft on the Xbox if I wanted to play it two-player. I was like, Minecraft, what? I can't co-op. I can't co-op Minecraft unless I'm playing it in HD. This is crazy. Yeah, well, because I mean, talk about not fancy graphics, right? (laughs) Right. But apparently it's just, you know, that's the way technology is. And I know that a lot of, um, a lot of companies are trying to figure out ways to counteract that. But I've always been a really big gamer. I loved, uh, the Legend of Zelda series has been one that has always really stuck with me. Um, and, and I've, I've always immersed myself in the experience. Mm-hmm. If it's, if it's not a game where I can feel like I'm part of the experience, I'm the character, I'm, I'm in the world. I'm not terribly interested in it. I'll, I'll play, I'll play fun, just casual games or, you know, I'll hang out with my friends and, and maybe do a round of battlefield or something like that. Right. But I, I really get into not just story games, but games where they put you in the shoes of the character. Right. Where you're well, and those are that sort of Bioware signature, right? The the moral decision and, and all those those components that go into how the gamer impacts the gameplay. 
Right. Absolutely. Um, and it sounds so, it sounds so vain, but I've always been really, uh, the hook for me to get into a game is, is whether there's a character creator, (laughs) like there are some really great RPGs like, uh, Deus Ex and, uh, wonderful kind of adventure, uh, story-based games like Assassin's Creed that I'll play, but I don't really get into them Mm -hmm. because just for the sole fact that I feel like I need to be able to create my character, figure out how he or she looks, the the fact that I want to be able to be a she, if I want to be right is, is a huge thing for me. Yeah. So I'm much more inclined to play games like fable, um, like mass effect, dragon age. Um, I really enjoyed even, even far back. Um, uh, my friend Holly got me into Baldur's gate the other last year and I played that, um, a bit. I, I never finished it. I need to go back and finish that game, <laughs> especially now that they're coming out with the, yeah. Um, renewed, re rehanced, revisioned version of it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I had this, I have a similar experience and I've, I've talked about it on the show before, but there was one game that I played that had a very sophisticated character creation system. It was Brink and, but there were no female avatars, which still amazes me that they had, you know, 1.6 million variations of your avatars, but not a single female one to play. And I never connected to that game. I was looking through my Steam library and I was like, oh, I played that game for nine hours. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Because I just I never attached with what was on the screen. I could just just never get to the point where I was like, yeah, I really want this. I really want to play this because I, I could never have that kind of that identification that I felt like I needed in order to play, which is really funny because now that I'm playing Borderlands, I'm playing a male tune in Borderlands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think I've changed a little bit. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I, yeah. I, I want to play Borderlands, but I can't because it's, it's first person. And mm-hmm. I just, the, the field of vision, it's just, I, I get really terrible headaches. I yeah. love Borderlands the first one, but I, I would have to play in like 15 minute chunks and then yeah. like rest. Yeah. So, uh, as far as I know about Borderlands two with the kind of co-op experience, that's not really, um, something that, yeah. Yeah. It'd be hard to jump in and play for just 15 minutes with people. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a tough game visually. Yeah. Well, what else goes into your choices for avatar development? I mean, are you looking for a, a character with a good story or are you looking at being able to interject, um, certain aspects of your own into a character? I think a little bit of both. I, I don't make a character that always looks and feels like it's going to be me, although I do have kind of an archetype character that when I do create a character, I tend to make that character. I I, I tend to make kind of the sassy bard type character uh-huh. who um, is a fast talker, who is conventionally attractive, Um and probably has a hairstyle that I wish I had, but it doesn't always, it doesn't always look like me or, or resemble me in any, any way. And, uh, you know, generally the character, I, I try not to make the character too thin or too heavy, but it, it, again, it's one of those things where it's an ideal, but it's not necessarily an ideal of how I see myself. So it is, it is definitely a mix, but I do have a, a very, standard character that I like to play. And I think that goes all the way back to 
playing tabletop games. Mm. I used to, in high school, I started a Dungeons and Dragons club with a few of my friends. And actually the vice principal called me and my best friend into the office to make sure that we weren't playing playing with real blood or something. We like, <laughs> you have no idea what Dungeons and Dragons is at all. We're just a bunch of nerds sitting here like writing down, you know, numbers and rolling wow. dice. But whenever I played D and D, I always rolled a bard um, with very high charisma, and uh, was always the kind of the person who tried to push the limit of the the dungeon master to frustrate everyone. That's awesome. I, I, the bard is a really interesting class. I tried um, I tried playing one in uh, DDO Dungeons and Dragons Online for a while. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It's really hard in a video game to play the bard <laughs> yeah especially if you're not in a really large group of people who have you know, who can protect you if you're, you're right and i tend to solo a lot so it didn't work out particularly well for me to be trying to play my music to knock out the you know the things that were attacking me when i was about to die <laughs> yeah exactly the bard's a very good party camp leader and yeah. a very good great at talking their way out of conflict but once the conflict starts you're like ah, oh, where's Where's the warrior? <laughs> right, right, exactly. Where Where is the character that has all the hit points that can stand in front of this? <laughs> so, what other um, what other games have you played with with character creation that and that where the process has become meaningful to the gameplay? Do you have any other examples? The one that I'm playing now is Guild Wars Two, and I literally bought it because I saw that it had a character creator, and the character creator is so sophisticated. I was really surprised at all the different nuances you could do with it. So I've created a few different characters um, and it has absolutely um, informed the way that I play the game. Mm. I feel like it, it really helps me connect with the character, especially in the fact that so in Guild Wars 2, you create your character and then it gives you a few different things. Um, it, it says, you know, uh, one of my biggest regrets was, and you can pick three options. I, oh. I, wanted, I wanted to run away to the circus. I uh, don't know who my parents are. Those kind of things that really change your experience. And it doesn't, I, at least I haven't encountered it so far. It does give you some different question things that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I think it's just kind of a psychological uh, experience where you feel more deeply related to the character and you feel more of that role playing yeah. that you don't yeah. necessarily in other games where maybe they just have a character creator and then you're just thrown into the world or where you're giving an introduction with this epic iconic character that is very cool but other than what they give you with your backstory that's really what you have to work with and right. you can't inject your own um ideas of the character right and your own your own sort of history or ideas that that sure absolutely yeah come out of that that's a really interesting that they sort of have that almost role play built into the character creator for guild wars because i don't i love it yeah i don't i don't know that i've heard of that i have i have a friend who's playing guild wars and has been trying i'm a little burnt out on mmos right now so i'm trying to avoid it but (laughs) (laughs) he keeps talking about how great it is so it's very tempting to be like hmm maybe i'll check out another one (laughs) you've said that having a character creator is really important do you spend any amount of time outside of the game working on your characters or your character tree or anything, or is it oh, all yeah. in game? 
No, I, I definitely will. I'm not as good at the strategy and tactics. I am an unashamed, easy mode player. <laughs> right on. I'm with I you will, on that one. <laughs> I, will go, I will go and look at like different character trees and try to figure it out. And, um, I'll, even when I'm outside of the game, I might go and log on to a game and just go and create a character and then not even play. It's I'm, mm. I don't, I don't know many people like myself. I'm the, I'm a very strange person. It's, 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 I do the same thing with the Sims. I get much more satisfaction about making my Sim and building its house than I do actually like watching my Sim live in its house <laughs> and having it do things and like get a job. I'm, I'm like, no, as soon as I finish its house, I'm, I'm going to start over. <laughs> well, Regina, this still sounds like um, your role player type. Yeah, so. I was I was just thinking that almost almost everything. I've, I've said there's a little touch of of self player going on here. I think. Yeah, but but I think the the majority is role play. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I did I I did read up on the three characters. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely not mastery <laughs> at all. It does. I I there are so many games where, and I'm also the kind of player who I really. I really have to force myself to finish a game, mm-hmm. not because I'm not into it, but I feel like as soon as I finish a game that it's over and I can't go back and play it again. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know why. So I, there's tons of games that I have that I haven't finished yet or that I've gotten to maybe the climax of the story and I've put it away for a while just because, um, I don't want to finish it. So I'm definitely mm-hmm. not that person who's like an achievement collector or mm-hmm. feels like they need to, you know, unlock all the treasure chests. Although that is that for some reason, unlocking treasure chests is something that I do feel very upset if I can't get to a treasure chest or if I don't have the key for something. But I, I did associate with self a lot and, and role play. Mm -hmm. And I can definitely see based on the way I'm talking that role play seems to be more heavily influenced into what I'm doing. Because if, if I, if I don't, associate with the story and the the character it doesn't really matter that I can do you know certain things to make it make it reflect who I am or that I experience myself in the character well I can I can see that and I can see the play sort of between the two of them as well where and I saw that that was one of the things when I was writing the dissertation that I made sure that I had categories that that bled over between them I didn't want sort of distinct lines between anything Mm -hmm. but from what the, the way that you're talking, and it might be that we're asking specifically, you know, in this instance about the way you create your avatars, and it might be that the avatar creation has more of a role play element to it. Oh, it definitely does. And then the rest of the game experience might for you too. You know, that is so true. I actually think a lot about the backstory of my character, especially when they don't give me things to Mm -hmm. create a backstory I start thinking like okay well she has the scar here and it's because when she was 15 she was working as a cook and she you know someone threw a hot plate at her something something crazy like right right or I'm I'm thinking about my commander shepherd and I'll think about her hairstyle Mm -hmm. and I'll try to figure out what the justification I have one of my one of my shepherds the my main shepherd is a blonde with really tan skin and she wears her hair in this really severe bun. So Mm. she has this like, like I imagine that when she takes her hair down, she has these like beautiful golden locks and she's really, really tan. She looks nothing like me. And I, you know, I, I didn't want her to look anything like me, but the way she looked, I created this 
idea of who she was and that because she was blonde and, and traditionally very pretty people expected less of her. So she was always trying to prove people wrong. And, you know, that's not even something that the game gives you insight into it. It's not even something that is important to the gameplay experience. And it, it, Mass Effect does give you a few things about, you know, who your character is Mm -hmm. as a colonist, as a survivor, things like that. But I still felt very compelled to put my own personal touch on it. And I think that, I think Mm -hmm. that there are a lot of games that are figuring that out. And instead of giving you a very strict, like, this is who this character is, this is their backstory. They're giving you, even for characters like in Assassin's Creed, they're giving you more leeway to inject your own I- ideas and mm-hmm. your own identity. That character. Yeah. yeah, 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 to put a little bit more of who you are or who you want to be or, you know, who the character is that you're creating. Oh, yeah, which yeah. I absolutely, I absolutely appreciate because I know that that's not that's not the majority of players. Mm-hmm. I remember I was writing my, my master's dissertation, not a PhD dissertation. So not as, not as, um, <laughs> not as thrilling. All, all that means is you don't have as much debt as I do. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, when I was writing mine, it was when Mass Effect 2 came out and I used, I used the game and the fandom as part of my experience. And I remember that, um, the marketing team for Mass Effect put out a few kind of telemetry graphics about how people played the game. And I was so surprised that, you know, 80% played default male soldier shepherd. So you kind of just imagine they just pressed a three times and started the game because they, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't what they cared about. So I kind of imagine that in a lot of AAA games that's that's pretty much the experience that they are getting with most of the players so for me it's so I think it's so important to recognize that these companies are still tailoring uh customization and different gameplay to people who maybe aren't in their 80% but are still an important part of their fan base. So I've always really appreciated that since I I figured that out. I don't think I've ever really thought about that. I remember early when I was writing about World of Warcraft, having noticed that the default setting, this was years ago. It's it's not not the way this way anymore. But when you went in to create a character, the default was a uh, male human warrior. Like that was every time you started a new character, that was what came up. Right. And I was always like, oh, come on, you know, <laughs> at least have it. So it changes up. Cause I mean, at that point they had, you know, five races or whatever, you know, they, they had right. a lot of choices that you could come up and he was always blonde and blue eyed. And so I was like, people really, you know, <laughs> I remember that guy. Yeah. I, I can say, I can still see his face because I was always so irritated that it was exactly the same every time. I'm like, all you have to do is hit a button, you know, in every time it opens this screen, it just hits a random, you know, mm-hmm. character instead of this same one all the time, which is what they ended up doing eventually. Then, you know, now it's a, you get a variety of, of defaults, but I always wondered about that. And, and I think that in terms of, you know, the, the gamer types that we talk about and that I found through my interviews, I think that's a mastery thing. I, those gamers who are going in just to blast through the game, don't care what they look like. Don't care that there's no option to be a different gender. Don't care about that. But that 20% that you said, I, th- I think is growing. I think more people are looking at it in a different way. And I think online gaming, because you're playing with other people, is part of what's sort of bringing that out. Yeah, absolutely. For me, it seems like some of those 
some of those guys who maybe weren't as invested in that aspect, um, and women, I, I don't want to exclude anyone, are maybe are maybe seeing kind of a little bit more why that's a cool facet because they're not making as accessible to just click, 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 and then you play the game. Right. And also, I think that more people are getting into gaming than previously. You're yeah, getting people really. who were kind of like, oh, well, I don't really like the idea of shooting people. And you're like, well, then you can be a mage and you right. can just shoot shoot fireballs at people. Right. And you're like, oh, okay, well, that doesn't seem as violent or scary. And, right. and more story-based gaming, it, it feels like a multimedia experience. I don't. Right. I think that a lot of people who are maybe fit in that mastery care, uh, category worry that that's dumbing down games or that right right. that's taking away from the experience and somehow which is just privileging you know mastery which everybody can should be able to have their own experience it doesn't mean one's better than the other yeah definitely and I, i do think that games are still are still very strategic they're very interactive they're they you know, if they're not that, they're not really a game anymore. So I don't think that the the mastery type will ever really have to worry about core gaming going from that, yeah. even if it does it adopt some more casual um, or role-playing aspects. Right. right. Well, I think that game developers are beginning to create a – they've gotten a touch of, of beautiful finesse to me in – including all the gamer types. I think they're very aware of the mastery player and the role player and the person who cares about the story. Because even with Borderlands 2, I mean, they they come out saying that they're an RPG. Of course, they've got limited avatar development. But right. at mm-hmm. the same time, in the original Borderlands, the characters really had no backstory. Right. The, the story was very limited. Well, in Borderlands 2, they began interjecting a backstory. And you can participate that in that or not. I mean, you find these recorders that are about your character, their personal diaries. And you still can go through Borderlands and just blow everything up. I mean, you can just right. absolutely charge through these games. But the... All the game developers, I mean, I even saw it with Mass Effect. There's just beautiful finesse of including all the different types. Yeah, I think that for games to be successful and for publishers to continue expanding their audience and selling to different types of people, I think that there there is that worry, that, that apprehension that core mechanics are being dumbed down or that people are adopting different strategies to get new players in but to be perfectly honest i think that it is actually rounding out the experience of games more Mm -hmm. and more and you know i'm i'm starting to get into games that i never thought that i would be interested in exactly Mm -hmm. yeah and i I don't think that's a bad thing at all because it provides it as long as it provides a well-rounded experience and it doesn't it doesn't heavily skew away from, you know, taking all of the strategy out of the game and, and just being kind of a point and click adventure for what was once a, a really strategy heavy mastery type of a game. I think that, you know, adding more elements to round out the experience for everyone is, is, is great. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think that that is the trend and I, I think it's really powerful 
at the same time, I, I can see the the side where it's like, oh, this is changing my experience. But at the same time, it doesn't have to, you know, no. most of the changes are optional. You can you can finesse the game in a way that you want it. You can play it the way that you want it. You know, I, I got a friend turned on to a game called Dungeon Defenders, and she got totally addicted around Easter to um, finding they had actual Easter eggs in the game that you could oh, find. Nice. Yeah. And it was really and it's adorable. It's a really adorable game just in general. But they had Easter eggs that had different um, uh, weapons or gear and, you know, special things that you could find. And some of them were worth more money. And she just totally got into, you know, f- essentially farming them. But she mm-hmm. wasn't farming for, you know, the accumulation of the wealth she just wanted to find all the cool stuff the game had right exactly you know but it's still to get the really good stuff she still had to master what she was doing because the best eggs were on the hardest levels of the game Hmm. so so you know it sort it sort of incorporates all of it and i think that nuance is easily missed if you're not paying attention or if you're too worried about your experience being compromised somehow Right, right. And, well, and games are always, you know, I, I think that people enjoy what they enjoy. And mm-hmm. there's always there's always a concern when their experience is changing. Yeah. But I think that if if we don't want to keep buying the same game over and over, <laughs> right. which I would hate, I would hate to feel like I'm shelling out, you know, 60 plus dollars right. for the for same, the same experience yeah. that I yeah. played years ago, because exactly. I, I'm, you know, I don't get rid of my old games. I right. still have all my old consoles. And if I want to pick up uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, I'm going to go play Sonic the Hedgehog 3 because that's Sonic at its best. I think I don't need to go play someone's rehash of the game now i would rather iterate and expand and innovate with the technology and the philosophies that are going on now right Um, so i i don't i don't really see the value in creating the same games over and over again yeah absolutely well with your background and actually having worked in the industry the our key question is how would you define a gamer then oh that's good question <laughs> that's what everybody said when i did the research they're just yeah like, i have never thought of that before <laughs> i think i feel like i told someone what i defined a gamer as a few weeks ago in an interview i did for someone's school project but now i feel like i'm not going to remember it and i'm not going to sound as interesting or <laughs> i think i define a gamer as someone and I, you know there's I'm okay, so I'm I'm going to interpret your question. Go for it. How I would define someone who considers themselves a gamer is that can I, can sure, I do that? Sure, absolutely. I think that to consider yourself a gamer is entirely a personal choice. I, I know a lot of people who consider themselves gamers, and all they do is play Facebook games. <laughs> I know people who just play, you know, Call of Duties and the battlefields, right. those kind of things that for me, I'm kind of like, that's, you know, that's not gaming. That's just, that's just make believe war kind of mm-hmm. thing. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I, so, but for the person it's whatever they are doing that is making them consider themselves a gamer because it is a very, it, it's a title that's very, uh, self it's a it's a self-attribute it's mm-hmm. not something where someone can say oh you're a gamer and you're not and i say that with the complete awareness that that's exactly what everyone is doing is saying this person's a gamer and this person's not a gamer right and even all the way back to you know internally with with 
uh, marketing departments figuring out who they're trying to market to mm-hmm. because you're not trying to market to everyone. So they, they do have to make some judgment calls about who's a gamer, who's a fan of this, who's a fan of that. But for me, it really does go back to is gaming an important experience in your life? Right. Is it something that you would consider not even maybe like one of the biggest things that you would mention, but because I know that for a lot of people, the most important things in their lives are are also the things that they almost don't even think about. They're just so intuitive that, you know, like if I, if you had to ask me to describe myself, I don't think I would say that I'm a woman. Um, (laughs) So it's so ingrained in that I just don't even say it. So Mm -hmm. I've never really called myself a geek or a gamer because that's just so part of who I am. I think one to go on a tangent, someone once asked me back when I was applying to Bioware, I was also applying for a role in the old Republic. And the interviewer asked me if I liked Star Wars and I was kind of taken aback and I was like, well, yeah, doesn't like, of course. (laughs) Doesn't everybody? (laughs) Everyone likes Star Wars. Right. Yeah. Duh. I just can't even imagine a situation where Star Wars wouldn't be part of someone's daily lexicon mm-hmm. in the same way mm-hmm. that the sky is blue. And I can't imagine someone telling me that for them the sky is red or something like that. So I think being a gamer is is when it, it does start impacting your own identity, whether mm-hmm. or not you vocalize that. And I, I think that it has to have a, a impact on the way you see the world that you don't necessarily see the world and appropriate it to your gaming experience. But there are so many times when I'll walk down the street, I I remember I was in college and uh, my dorm was by sorority row and I saw the tri Delta symbol and I immediately thought of Zelda. Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, if I was in a sorority, I'd want to be in that one. It turns out (laughs) terrible, awful sorority. And I did not ever pledge for a sorority, but you know, that was kind of the gamer in me coming out and appropriating the world that I saw around me and interpreting it in with my own experience as a a huge fan of video games. So I think that I didn't really answer your question. I'm sorry. No, actually perfect. Yeah, you really did. And you know, it, it continues to amaze us because, you know, that was the first question I asked everybody in this study and Rhonda remembers what it was like to have to be sort of blindsided with it, but we never get the same answer. And, and what was really interesting about your interpretation and wanting to focus on people who call themselves a gamer, that, that was like the classification for anybody to participate in the study was mm-hmm. they had to self identify as a gamer. Like right. I didn't want to be assigning that title to people, the people who came and talked to, I, I wanted to be people who called themselves a gamer. So, so it's really interesting that you picked right up sort of on that, that same idea without even having been prompted for it. So. Oh, wow. I feel proud of myself. <laughs> Great. Um, I just want to remind our listeners that we're talking to Jessica Marizan, who's a gamer, cosplayer, and the social media manager at BioWare. Now, both of you guys went to the Geek Girl Con, right? Yes. And there was a panel that Regina didn't get to go to, the Female Gamer Perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think, Regina, you wanted to find out uh, how that panel went. Yeah. Je- Jessica, you were on the panel, right? Yes, I was. And um, how and did that go? For anyone who is interested in, in convention life and, you know, maybe going to your first convention, 
Geek Girl Con is the best convention. It is so inclusive. Yep. It is so welcoming. I wholly agree. <laughs> it's, it's a really great convention. I'm, mm-hmm. I've, I've been to a lot of, you know, first and second year cons and that one is the most organized and, and really it's just got a good vibe going in there. Mm-hmm. And you, yep. you, you really, I, I think a lot of people throw around the word community Real, all they really mean are people who are like in the same room or the same <laughs> group of interests. Right. But, you know, community, you don't really see community very often anymore. But you see it at Key Girl Con. Everyone mm-hmm. is really supportive. You feel like you're experiencing something together. So for the um, myth of the female perspective, what we did is we kind of went down the, the line and we had um, one of our editors, uh, some writers, a level designer, and one of our producers and myself, we talked a little bit about what are your favorite games and what is your gaming style? Mm-hmm. And I think all of us gave a completely different answer. You know, I, of course, like hounded about my character customizations. <laughs> Someone talked about how if they really don't get to see a lot of like blood and guts and gore and just, you know, killing people that they're not interested. Someone else talked about how they're really into puzzles and someone else talked about how they really like doing stealthy type games. So mm-hmm. I think just within the first three minutes, we had completely like busted the myth of the female perspective. Right. Because you couldn't ask any one of us for our perspective on something and have it be representative of all females. Right. You would hear, okay, well, the, this is a female who is also a... RPG player. This is a female who is really, really into shooter games. So it's much more nuanced is what we came up with. But at the same time, there are times that a lot of the the people at Bioware will ask us for our perspective as a female. And that's more to do, that's less to do with gameplay mechanics and more to do with kind of story. Mm. And we'll do that with, with various things. Like if someone at Bioware is making a gay character, they might show it to some people who uh, identify and are, are openly gay in the company and mm. ask them what they think about it. And again, we have to be very mindful of the fact that this one person's opinion is not going to represent everyone right. who identifies as that. One of the stories that our level designer, Chris Schoenberg, told was that she and a few other women were asked about the character design for Thane Krios, who is this alien assassin um and is also kind of has a troubled past and is a bit romantic and they were asked like you know would you would you romance this guy and chris said that the first iteration that they showed her was this completely like bald white character and it had a red stripe down its face (laughs) and they asked her, like, well, what do you think about this? And she said, if I pee on it, will it tell me if I'm pregnant? <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> Karen, and one of our one of our editors, uh, was asked to kind of help out with with Garris's outfit when he comes up to Shepard's cabin to romance. Shepherd, if you if you pick Garrus as your romance option, so she was asked, you know, about his outfit and things like that, and and so in that case, it's not just asking about a female perspective; it's asking about a straight female who would be interested in Garrus. So and we do we are very mindful when we do get mm-hmm. 
a perspective that we are not just saying, you know, a general like, oh, you know, you're gay or you're a female or you are a straight white male, but right. making sure that it's a little more nuanced so that we're at least targeting or we at least we're aware of who, what their experience is when they're giving us that opinion. How was the crowd sort of reaction to to the panel and to this sort of different perspective? Oh, I think that they really enjoyed it. And yeah. I, whenever I'm on a panel, I, I love the kind of panels where you're not just, you know, spouting off worldly wise information to people mm-hmm. and then they come and ask you questions and you get to, you know, fill their head with knowledge. I, I love panels and Bioware always, always does this where they're talking to you and you're talking to them and it's, it's a much more equal footing. And so people would come up and share their experiences mm-hmm. with this kind of female perspective. Someone talked That's to a- us about, um, about Spider-Man, Spider-Man movie that was coming out and how Sephora had a line of nail polish for Spider-Man. And we talked about how that can be both a good and a bad thing. It right. can be bad in the sense that some people think like, Oh, well women will, can only be interested in Spider-Man yeah, if superheroes. we try to sell them yeah. makeup or we try to disguise this so it's less right. of a comic book feel. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, we also had the opinion that, okay, if you're in Sephora, it's likely you're already interested in makeup. Right. And you might find something that you're like, oh, wow, this not only uh, speaks to my interest as someone who's interested in the beauty industry and makeup and cosmetics – but also the geek in me. Right. You know, that it could so, cross between the two of them. Yeah. So it's yeah. a very dualist perspective. And I think yeah. both points are important to remember mm-hmm. that ideally Spider-Man was appealing to women in more than just kind of putting ads in Cosmo mm-hmm. and, and making this a very one-sided perspective. But there, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to reach audiences on their terms and things that they're interested in already. Mm -hmm. It is, it is a very slippery slope and it is something that we do need to be very mindful of. And, and the more mindful you are and the more you move away from kind of binary ways of identifying as, you know, what's, what's normative. Mm -hmm. I think that that's where you get away from getting into tricky waters that, that was one of the reasons why we did an episode a few episodes back about um, discussing casual versus hardcore gamer mm-hmm. definitions. And that was one of the things I wanted to do. I, I had avoided those terms entirely when I was writing the dissertation because it was like a whole dissertation could be about those classifications. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. I didn't want to. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, I was just going to say Angie might be casual in one in one yeah. sense. Yeah. And yeah. You know, like I think you can be a very hardcore Facebook gamer. I don't mm. think that, and you oh, know, yeah. guys who might play Battlefield mm-hmm. might go in and play the Facebook game to get, you know, unlock something. Right. And I would consider them on that Facebook game a very casual player because right. they're not there for intrinsically for that experience. So those are you good know, points. Yeah. In those, different yeah, senses, absolutely. you might find yourself to be very hardcore in one kind of game and then very casual in another. Right, exactly. And I know hardcore uh Farmville players. Like I swear to you, yeah. these, these people have multiple Facebook accounts so that they can pass, you know, stuff back and forth to themselves. Right. And they're very yeah. they can be very strategic about it. It's not just, you know, for yeah. someone for someone like me who is who is not 
very into or very good at those games. I'll just, you know, farm something and be, and, and you'll read strategy guides about Mm -hmm. the optimal times to plant things, Mm -hmm. which farm animal you should use to get the best loot, whatever. And that to me is absolutely no different than the strategy guides that you might pick up that Primo will write on Assassin's Creed or something. Yeah. How to, how to get the best gear or how to, you know, do this in the shortest amount of time or whatever else. Right. Whatever measurement you're using. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just, you're still gamifying Mm -hmm. an experience and there's going to be different levels of participation no matter what. Yep. Absolutely. Were there any surprises or anything unusual that you learned in that panel? I do think that, it's always that, that dualist experience that I was talking about, because you're not going to change anyone's mind, nor is it Mm -hmm. really right to change people, people's mind that if they feel like something is genuinely sexist or offensive or something like that. And one experience that, that I had, I wasn't hired at Bioware yet, but I was kind of consulting back when they did the vote on what female shepherd looks like. And some people thought this is so amazing that you're focusing on female shepherd. Finally, that's in the marketing campaign. It's not just dude Shep. And then other people were like, this is so sexist and offensive. You're just making this beauty pageant. You wouldn't have done this with male shepherd. And we did have also those kind of experiences with people sitting on that panel who were Mm -hmm. talking about things that, you know, for me, I was kind of like, well, we didn't even think that people would find X, Y, or Z offensive, or, you know, I'm sure that the people who did the, and I like to think the best in people, I'm sure that the people in who did the Spider-Man thing weren't thinking, you know, women are just stupid and they'll only watch a movie <laughs> if they can make a on it. Right. But I'm always surprised that some people are just not willing to give someone the benefit of the doubt. You know, I think, I think that for a lot of reasons, people are totally in the right in that sense that there are there there are a lot of people who have had some really really awful experiences that have made them very jaded to you know the the gaming industry to what marketing is doing behind closed doors Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. kind of sexism and and how rampant it runs but I do think that one of the messages we were trying to put across was, you know, it's absolutely not okay to be sexist, but at the same time, we need to start giving people the benefit of the doubt so that when people are making strides, we're not attacking them for it. Right. We are applauding them for it and ask other people why they're not doing the same thing. Because you'll see, I think with a lot of progressive games and a lot of, you know, progressive TV shows, entertainment in general, that when people step outside the comfort zone, they're the first people to get attacked for not mm-hmm. going far enough. Right. And right. so then I worry that you're going to go back to executives who all they see are numbers and dollars that they're going to see, well, that caused a huge controversy. Right. Let's, instead of going and pushing the boundary, let's just scale back and go with what everyone else is doing because mm-hmm. we don't, we don't need to get to open ourselves up to attack. So I think that was one surprising thing is that I, I, because I am so, almost to the point of, um, having a few burned experiences, um, with people, I, I am so optimistic and willing to believe the best in people 
that I do get very surprised when I come across someone who's just completely jaded, uh, even about something that I've worked on. And they'll be like, no, you guys were being sexist for this reason. And I'm like, well, I can tell you we weren't because I was working on that campaign. And right. But it's, it's interesting. And, and you definitely can't fault someone for believing that because sexism and misogyny is running rampant. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it really is just they're they're speaking from their own experience everybody's interpretations are going to be different. And, and I, I was thinking about this and we talked in a, in an episode about the trailer for the new Lara Croft origin story that was coming out. And my reaction to it was different than a lot of people's, especially a lot of feminists ideas about it. I could, I could see where they were coming from and I could see the discomfort a lot of people had, but because that was based out of their own experience. Right. And it's, it's hard to look at anything and take your individual experience of it out <laughs> right? and your okay. own reaction out of your, you know, your life and all that stuff. Right. And it's so, I mean, the Laura Croft thing is just, it's, it's a very interesting subject because as far as I know, the person who wrote that scene was a woman. I think that that executive producer who was talking about all of that stuff did not represent the entire company. Oh no, I, I, that was, yeah, that was my problem with it too, was that everybody was taking what one person said as what the story was saying. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's his interpretation of this, not anybody else's. (laughs) Just totally went off message. And I can't even imagine what the PR person who must've been sitting like next to him, like they were probably (laughs) like eating their hand or something. (laughs) Uh, And you know, the fact that like, again, I'm, I just think that Laura Croft has some come so far mm, the Lord mm-hmm. that you're seeing in this new game she's not you know boobylicious which you know there's nothing wrong with being boobylicious but that's not like a unique selling point of the game is like it, exactly and, and that's what's beautiful is it's moved past like I never would have thought because I I had such mixed feelings about her as a character mm-hmm. through all of my life as a gamer and then as a researcher and as a feminist I was always kind of like god she could be so much but the boob task is getting in the way for that, at least yeah. for me, of my experience. And that was one of the reasons why I thought, you know, this new incarnation of her was so much more real and wasn't playing on that kind of sensational. And so I thought it was really unfortunate that some of the interpretations ended up being what they were and that the PR person sort of stuck his foot in his mouth with, you want to protect yeah. her. And I'm like, no, you don't Absolutely. You want to be her. Even the guys who are playing really want to be her because she's a mm-hmm. kick-ass character. So, right. Let's or think. the guys who don't care at all and they're just trying to collect achievements. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The mastery players who don't, who could care less if there's boobs or whatever that are yeah. just you know, hopping in to play the game. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that that's true. And I think that that's kind of a responsibility on us as, as feminists, as consumers, to make sure that when we're talking, we're talking intelligently so that people aren't just automatically dismissing us as, you know, oh, well, here's the next latest controversy in the gaming world. Um, or or which, here's this radical idea that I can just dismiss because it has gone too far out. Because that's the yeah. other problem with being the first person out on the limb of the tree is people are like, oh, you're too far out there. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that that's something that in fandom and and I've, I've talked a bit about it on other panels and in internally with Bioware talking about people that um, it's important for consumers to also kind of self-police and make sure that when they're talking, when they're giving feedback to Bioware right. to anyone that they're doing it in a rational way that exactly 
is is grounded faceted yeah well we we can't let you go jessica without talking about the the big controversy (laughs) that that bioware faced this year Mm -hmm. (laughs) and ronda can speak more intimately too because i i am not i haven't played mass effect so i i'm not as i'm i'm knowledgeable of it in terms of i've talked to a lot of people who've played it but sure can speak a little bit more detailed to it (laughs) well i'm I'm even more fascinated because I I can tell now how how obvious it is that you are the perfect person for their community management yes, job. You, Thank yeah, you. Yeah, that's Absolutely. that's coming through really clearly. But were you involved with the feedback and that process with Bioware in processing the user's response to the end of Mass Effect Three? Yes, definitely. I was still on contract at that point. Mm-hmm. So I was getting paid hourly, was always reminded I had to get approval if I wanted to work overtime, I, those kind of things. So during that time, I just saw this huge influx of people talking about the game and I just would stay late and I, I wouldn't log the hours because I knew that I didn't get approval for them and that talking to people on Twitter wasn't necessarily the best use of my time to work, but I, I would... I was talking to people from like seven in the morning until like three at night. I would be in oh bed like tweeting to people. And a few <laughs> times my, my account actually got locked because I tweeted so many times in 24 hours that <laughs> Twitter <laughs> thought I was a spam bot. Oh my God. <laughs> but for me, I just felt it was so important to keep those, the, the lines of communication open. And again, I'm, I hope that other people saw that. And mm-hmm. some people were kind of like, oh, well, she's just, you know, someone's obviously given her a script and she's just mm-hmm. feeding us the PR line, which is not true. I do work closely with PR, but I'm not, I'm not PR. And for the most part, PR um, works a lot with the press. They don't even really work with consumers. Yeah, I, I was talking all the time. I made, I got really good at Excel really quickly <laughs> to try to collate the feedback. I mm-hmm. wrote, I wrote a, a very large document about what everyone's main questions, concerns, or issues were, and what were we going to do to resolve those. And I was working with all of the game leads on that. They would ask me, you know, based on what I had talked to people about, what were the top issues in in the game that when they were making the extended cut, even before people knew we were doing that, um, what were the top issues that I thought needed to be addressed? So for me, it wasn't, they weren't just asking my opinion as a gamer or as a fan. They were asking because I was spending so much time collecting that feedback and they were asking for data-driven opinions. So it was, mm-hmm. it was vital that I was able to talk to as many people as possible, gather enough feedback, read every survey and poll that came my way. It was, it was a really tough time, but I think that everyone from the game teams who read through the feedback I gave them to the people who sat back and decided, you know, how can we iterate on this to make a fulfilling experience for the extended cut. I think that everyone worked harder than they've ever worked. Mm -hmm. And, 
um, for an experience that was free. So it wasn't making anyone any extra money. People were postponing their vacations and everyone was doing it. And, you know, people, people will listen to this and, and not believe me and think, oh, well, she has to say that. But people were really doing it because we do care about what the fans think. And if the fans aren't satisfied with something, if they want more closure, if they're confused about, you know, a plot point as to why something happened and then it seemed illogical for something else to happen, that's a major issue. And I I think that it was important for everyone that we address that. So even though I was, you know, waking up at, at like six in the morning to get to do my hour commute to get to work at seven so that I could wouldn't miss a bunch of messages and tweeting at people until 3 a.m. and and talking to people on the forums and everything, I wouldn't do it any differently because Mass Effect and Bioware games as a whole are are driven by the players. If you don't have the players, you don't have anyone. And I think for some companies, it's it's easy to forget that. But for Bioware, we've always tried to be very humble about our fans and about the people who are buying our game. And we're really appreciative of that. So were they surprised at the reaction? I mean, I think everyone knew that the end would be controversial, but I, I think that there was absolutely people didn't think, and I'm not to cause any spoilers, but people didn't think some of the dire interpretations that certain characters were like, had died and were eating each other and, you know, like really, really drastic, like no one, no one anticipated stuff like that, but everyone did think, okay, this is going to be a really controversial way to end this. This is, this is going to, uh, you know, we're not giving a touchy feely ending that's going to make everyone happy. And so we did know all of that and we knew that not everyone was going to be happy with the ending, but we didn't anticipate the level of, catastrophe that people played the game and then they said, Oh, okay. So you were telling me that everything that I just did didn't matter because Mm -hmm. the way Mm -hmm. I see it, this is happening. And for us, we were like, no, no, no. We still think, you know, that there's hope in this, that there's, that there's interpretations to this. And I mean, that's, that's the problem when you have a game that is so literal in many ways, you're given choices, you're given, you're, you're able to see the cause and effect And for something to end and to have to rely on a little bit of interpretation on the consumer's part, people in this game weren't trained to do that. They weren't trained to think about metaphors of the game and about the overall grand effect of the game. They they wanted to see the effect of the game. And I think that, I think that everyone took that to heart and tried to give them as much of that as possible in the extended cut. uh, Just two final questions. Number one, can you tell what the main user complaint was? And at this point, I don't have a, I don't know about Regina, but I'm worried about spoilers. I I know what happens even if I, even if I'm playing. (laughs) Um, What are what specifically the main user complaint was and what the main feedback that Bioware took from all of this. What what feedback did they take to heart the most? Because I, we both here ag- agree with the passion and the vision of a, a creator, 
Mm-hmm. And I believe that that is obviously in the Mass Effect product. So what I'm curious about is what was the main thing that BioWare took from the user feedback as statistically, what was the biggest uh, complaint that floated to the top? So there actually wasn't one issue that I could point to as, as oh, wow. the main concern people had. And that's why it was such a complicated issue because you would have people talking to each other and they would both agree that they weren't happy. But if you started teasing it out, you would realize that they had two completely different reasons. Um, some people, some people wanted a happy ending. Some people wanted to see their shepherd get married, have baby shepherds. babies, yeah, mm-hmm. have little blue babies as the, as people were talking about and, you know, retire on a planet with their love interest. And that was one, one thing. Other people just had pure plot issues where they were saying, okay, why did this certain person go over there and how did they end up over here now? They had, you know, things that, that they considered to be plot holes that affected their immersion into the ending Mm. that they were like, I can't, I can't be into this because I'm seeing, I, I feel like there are plot holes here. So So it it took them out of their game experience. Yes. We had people, we had people who thought that the ending seemed very rushed. It seemed like they weren't visually as again, immersive as they would have liked. They, they just saw, you know, three different colors and they, they couldn't see the ramifications of their choices because the end was so simple looking. And then, you know, and you go and, and see all those things. So, so there was a multitude of, of, issues that we saw what we, so we actually made this like big tree diagram about different types of people and what their complaint was and what we could do to fix those. And there were people that just hated the ending. Like, you know, they just hated it for whatever reason. And we decided that we couldn't help those people. But for the people who were like, (laughs) I really, I really want to like this where I liked everything until this Mm. or another group that we decided we couldn't help was we decided we couldn't help the people who just all they wanted to do was have this happy ending and see their shepherd get married and have children. We were kind of like, well, that, that a little bit goes against the artistic vision that we had for this. Right. Yeah. You can, you can argue until the end of the day about whether games are, artistic or whether they're just a pure, you know, consumer good or not, but that there was an intentional decision that we're not going to show you that for logistical reasons, um, as well as Mm -hmm. thematic reasons that we don't want to tell someone that the canon ending is that your shepherd has to like go and get married and have kids because my shepherd, for instance, I can't imagine that ever being my shepherd. My shepherd like is probably totally riddled with like PTSD has, I'm sure has like (laughs) alcohol problems, if anything, and probably struggles after the game. If my shepherd lives with the idea of like the choices that they've made and you know, that you can never, I don't, my shepherd could never recover from that. So, so we decided that we also weren't going to do anything about that group. We were still happy with the thematic choices, but what we did realize is there were people who had clarity issues. They were confused or they, they thought that there wasn't enough care into these plot issues that I was talking about, what they called plot holes. Mm -hmm. And then there were, there was another group who just wanted more closure, who wanted to see the ramifications of the choices that they've made in all three games who wanted to see, okay, well, I understand this huge 
thing that you do at the end of the game, but I want to see a little bit of the aftermath. I don't want to imagine it all for myself. I want to know what happened to my squad. I want to know what happened to my crew. I want to know what happened to the So like an epilogue or, yeah, yeah. So those were the two groups that we decided we could help with. We, we said, okay, well, we can, we can help these, these people because it's not that they're, they hate the thematic conception of the ending. Mm -hmm. They either have issues with the plot or they want more resolution and, and closure to a game that, that we've always provided them resolution and closure for, that we've always taught them how to behave. And now we've changed that. So, um, and I think that what Bioware came away with and we're looking more heavily into is that Bioware games are not just about the protagonist. Mm-hmm. And mm. it's not just about the story. Um, I think people almost erroneously always say that Bioware makes really good stories and Bioware does a lot of games now are making really good stories, but Bioware I think is still the best at characters. Yes. Yeah. I think, the most that, depth. I think that Skyrim has a made an amazing story, but the characters have like five lines that they just repeat over and over again. That's not the same thing with Bioware. Bioware, you know, is either you can, you can decide for yourself whether you think Skyrim or Bioware has a better story. That's totally up for interpretation, but I think Bioware, without any doubt, takes more care and consideration and time and energy and money into creating really immersive characters yeah. outside of just the main protagonist. So yeah. that's what we realized. And that, that was one of the biggest issues with the ending of Mass Effect right. is that we ended it for Shepard, but we didn't end it for all those other characters. Right. And that was something that the extended cut help to resolve a little bit. Well, I I think the controversy and the, you know, the uproar that you had from people who played the game Mm -hmm. shows how good the character development is for, for, for that. Because if people weren't engaged with it, I mean, I, I talk about this a lot because I'm a pretty big Joss Whedon fan and, you know, nobody is safe in a Joss Whedon movie. I mean, nobody or a show or whatever, anybody could die. And people love him for that. And nobody like, I mean, people might yell at him like, you killed my favorite character or whatever. But nobody's going to go to him and say, you need to rewrite your movie because you killed my favorite character. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but people are still have that investment in it. And so I, I think that because the depth of the characters in the stories is so great, I think that's the reason why you have a community that's like, I really want to see what happened to the rest of these characters because I've attached to them in this way. And if I, if it, if I talk about games as a transcendent medium, as it's moving beyond entertainment in any other way there's no other form of entertainment that does what gaming does you know you you don't get into a movie you don't get to talk about the end of a movie you know you you don't get to have that impact so that that fact is is really puts it in a different place and that's the reason why i think gamers come back and are like i really need to know what happened with these people because they became important to me how i see myself and how i identify myself with this medium and with this game absolutely yeah, and I don't have a problem with the characters dying either. I was I was upset at the end of Mass Effect 2 when uh, my version of Jack died. But you don't know that kind of stuff's going to happen in a story. The, the right. decisions you make have a consequence. And I was unhappy about it, but that was because I liked her. Mm-hmm. And right. so it just made it a much more complicated layered story for me. I had no problem at the end of Mass Effect 3 that my Shep died. 
I was right. like, yeah, that sort of makes sense. You know, I, yeah. I, I can definitely go with this. I mean, if I were that dude, I would kind of like want it to be over with now anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I can't tell you how, how valuable the process you've explained is and mm-hmm. how, how that, how much that means hearing it as a user, knowing that you invest that much time and effort and creativity in, in producing a product that you obviously are passionate about. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It's just, it's beautiful, but yeah, um, everyone, everyone is a Bioware. It, it's, it's why it's such a great place to work and it's not just a job for anyone who works there. Awesome. Well, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Really yeah. And that's show. what I like. That's what I like seeing. Yeah. 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 So be- before we, we really, cause we're running, we're running late and I'm sorry for stepping <laughs> to this topic. And so, yeah, so, so fun and talking to you, Jessica, I'm sorry, but I wanted to give you a chance to tell our listeners a little bit about your cosplay projects that you have and your, your oh, yeah. business yes. and all, all the stuff that you do on that. So if you could tell us a little bit about that, that would be great. Sure. So before I was working in the video game industry, I was really involved in in the fan community and in cosplay. And my best friend, Holly Conrad, and I started a company called Crab Cat Industries. That's crab like crustacean and cat like um, the lol cat. <laughs> um, so Crab Cat Industries. And we do we start out doing commissions for for private collectors and, and people who wanted to cosplay as well as as companies and Bioware was our first big company to commission us. And then now we've moved into more of a realm about about teaching other people how to do things for themselves and doing DIY entertainment. So nice. we just we have a show now on the Nerdist channel YouTube, um, youtube.com slash Nerdist called uh, Try This at Home with Crab Cat Industries. And it, it's it's really celebrating getting out there and just going to Home Depot and buying some stuff and turning your workshop into a space where you can make stuff and um, it doesn't matter how good you are at doing it as long as you're having fun and learning something that's what's important so we're still making costumes for ourselves and going to conventions and and but our big goal now is to celebrate the community of cosplay and making things and and crafts and helping other people kind of tap into that and teaching people that, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to move to Hollywood to become well-known. Right. The internet generation is the biggest DIY, you know, I have friends who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars every year through YouTube content. And, you know, you can live anywhere, do anything and just kind of, if you have a dream, if you have an idea, just go for it. Don't, don't try to wait until someone will give you the opportunity to do it. Just start doing it. Awesome. And that's what we're about. Yeah. That's how we launched the podcast. So <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. We can very much uh, support you in that, that basic idea. Definitely. So, well, fantastic. Thank you so much, Jessica, for coming thank and talking you, to us today. Yeah. So much. This so is a much. real treat. Yeah, seriously. This is uh, this has been really great and a really nice uh, perspective for us because we talk a lot about how games are social and how community is important. So this really adds to that discussion. So. Oh, wonderful. Well, I had a blast. Excellent. Um, you guys are, are awesome. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome very much. You've been listening to Game On Girl. I'm the co-host, Rhonda Oglesby. You can contact me through Twitter at Row Room. That's R-H-O-R-H-O-O-M. Or you can email me at Rhonda at GameOnGirl.com. 
You can also read my tech blog at droolonthefrog.com. And I'm your host, Regina McMenemy, or Doc Liz with two Zs, as I'm known on Twitter. Many, many thanks to Jessica Marzin for joining us on the show today and sharing her insights, not only about working in the game industry, but about some of our favorite games and favorite game franchises. Really great discussion today that we really appreciated. So many thanks to her and make sure to check her out at crabcatindustries.com and check out her channel on The Nerdist on YouTube. Game on Girl is available on iTunes and Stitcher streaming. These links, along with references made in the show, can be found on our website at GameOnGirl.com. And you can also leave feedback through Twitter at Game underscore on underscore girl, or email me at Regina at GameOnGirl.com. This podcast is edited with Audacity, and the theme song Good Day by Triple Fox is used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Thanks for listening, and until next time, game on! Game on!